10. Thinking of magic and Mr. Whitacombe of whom dark hints of identification with the wandering Jew have been dropped who, we know, taught Prince George of Denmark horsemanship who was mentioned by Addison in the Spectator, by Dr. Johnson in the Rambler, and helped to put out each of the three fires that have happened at Astley's during the last two centuries, brought by these considerations to a train of mind highly susceptible of supernatural agency. We visited the Wizard of the North, the illustrious professor of Phoenixistography, and other branches of the black art, the names of which are as mysterious as their performance. One only specimen of his prowess convinced us of his supernatural talents. He politely solicited the loan of a bank note he was not choice as to the amount or bank of issue. It may be, saith the playbill, a bank of England or provincial note, for any sum from five pounds to a one thousand, his is better magic than all in Glendower's. For the note did come when he did call it. For a confiding individual in the box's dress circle of course actually did lend him. The wizard, a cool hundred, conceive the power. In a metaphysical sense, the conjurer must have had over the lender's mind. Was it animal magnetism? Was it terror raised by his extraordinary performances? That spirited the cash out of the pocket of the man, who, perhaps, thought that such supernatural talents might be otherwise employed against his very existence thus occupying his perturbed soul with the alternative, your money or your life. This subject is deeply interesting to actors out of engagements, literary men, and people who have seen better days, individuals who have brought this species of conjuration to a high state of perfection. It is a new and important chapter in the art of borrowing. We perceive in the wizard's advertisements he takes pupils, and offers to make them proficient in any of his delusions at a guinea per trick. We intend to put ourselves under his instructions for the banknote trick. The moment we can borrow one pound one for that purpose. Besides this, the wizard does a variety of things which made our hair stand on end. Even while reading their description in his playbill, we did not see him perform them. There was no occasion the banknote trick convinced us for the man who can borrow a hundred pounds whenever he wants it can do anything. Everybody ought to go and see him. Young ladies having a taste for sentimental looking men who wear their hair a lot in France, natural historians who want to see guinea pigs fly, gamesters who would like to be made fly to a card trick or two, connoisseurs, who wish to see how plum pudding may be made in hats, will all be gratified by a visit to the Adelphi, Macbeth at the Surrey, we heard the Macbeth choruses exquisitely performed, and saw the concluding combat furiously fought at this theatre, this was all appertaining unto Macbeth in which we could detect a near approach to the meaning and purpose of the text, except the performance of the Queen, by Mrs. H. Vining, who seemed to understand the purport of the words she had to speak, and was, consequently, in offense of a rare merit when Shakespeare is attempted on the other side of the Thames. The qualifications demanded of an actor by the usual run of Surrey audiences are lungs of undeniable efficiency, limbs which will admit of every variety of contour tie-on and a talent for broadsword combats. How, then, could the new Macbeth and Mr. Graham think of choosing this theater for his first appearance? His deportment is quiet, and his voice weak. It has, for instance, been usually thought, by most actors, that after a gentleman has murdered his sovereign, and caused a similar peccadillo to be committed upon his dearest friend, he would be, in some degree, agitated, and put out of the even tenor of his way. When the ghost of Banco appears at the banquet, on such an occasion, John Campbell and Edmund Keane used to think it advisable to start with an expression of terror or horror, but Mr. Graham indulges us with a new reading. 
he carefully places one foot somewhat in advance of the other, and puts his hands together with the utmost deliberation. Again, he says mildly, avaunt, and quit my sight. Let the earth hide thee, in a tone which would well befit the situation. If the text ran thus, dear me, how singular, pray go, when he does attempt to vociferate. The asthmatic complaint under which he evidently labors prevents him from delivering the sentences in more copious installments than the following, I'll fight till from my bones my flesh be hacked. We may be told that Mr. Graham cannot help his physical defects, but he can help being an actor, and, above all, choosing a part which requires great prowess of voice. In less trying characters, he may prove an acquisition, for he showed no lack of judgment nor of acquaintance with the conventional rules of the stage at the Surrey, and in Macbeth, he is entirely out of his element, above all, let him never play with Mr. Hicks, whose energy in the combat scene, and ramming all through Macduff, brought down, bravo, Hicks, in showers, the contrast is really too disadvantageous, but the choruses, never were they more bewitchingly performed, Leffler sings the part of Hecate better than his best friends could have anticipated, and, apart from the singing, Miss Romer's acting in the soprano which, is picturesque in the extreme. Hop intelligence Fanny Elsler has made an enormous fortune by her trips in America. Few pockets are so crammed by hops as hers. Oscar Byrne, professor of the college hornpipe to the London University, had a long interview yesterday with Lord Palmerston to give his lordship lessons in the new waltz step. The master complains that, despite a long political life's practice, the pupil does not turn quick enough. A change was, however, apparent at the last lesson and his lordship is expected soon to be able to effect a complete rotatory motion. Mademoiselle Taglioni has left London for Germany. Her fatherland, the country of her pa, the Society for the Promotion of Civilization have engaged Mr. Tom Matthews to teach the Hogtots the Minuet de la Cour and Tumbling. He departs with the other missionaries when the hot weather sets in Charles Keene is becoming so popular with the jokers of the day, that we have serious thoughts of reserving a corner entirely to his use. Amongst the many hits at the young tragedian, the two following are not the worst, early advantages. Keane's juvenile probation at Eton has done him good service with the aristocratic patrons of the drama, remarked a lady to a witty friend of ours. Yes, madam, was the reply. He seems to have gained by Eton what his father lost by drinking. Bell stickers beware. How Webster puts young Keane he seems to monopolize the walls, said Walkley to his colleague, Tom Duncombe. Merely a real is of the adage, the weakest always goes to the wall, replied the idler Finsbury. Punch, O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1, for the week ending August 7, 1841, The Wife Catchers, A Legend of My Uncle's Boots, in four chapters, his name tease proper you should hear, twas Timothy Thaddy Malagian, and whenever he finished his tumbler of punch, he always wished it full again, chapter I.I. You can have no idea, Jack, how deeply the loss of those venerated family retainers affected me. My uncle paused, I perceived that his eyes were full, and his tumbler empty, I therefore thought it advisable to divert his sorrow, by reminding him of our national proverb, is far darkness keel, a drink is better than a story. The old man's eyes glistened with pleasure, as he grasped my hand, saying, I see, Jack, you are worthy of your name. I was afraid that school learning and college would have spoiled your taste for honest drinking, but the right drop is in you still, my boy. I mentioned, continued he, resuming the thread of his story, 
that my grandfather died, leaving to his heirs the top boots, spurs, buckskin breeches, and red waistcoat. but it is about the first mentioned articles I mean especially to speak, as it was mainly through their respectable appearance that so many excellent matches and successful negotiations have been concluded by our family. If one of our cousins was about to await on his landlord or his sweetheart, if he meditated taking a farm or a wife, the tops were instantly brushed up, and put into a requisition. Indeed, so fortunate had they been in all the matrimonial embassies to which they had been attached, that they acquired the name of the wife catchers, amongst the young fellows of our family, something of the favor they enjoyed in the eyes of the fair sex should, perhaps, be attributed to the fact, that all the Duffies were fine strapping fellows, with legs that seemed made for setting off top boots to the best advantage, well, years rolled by, the sons of mothers whose hearts had been won by the irresistible boatism of Sean Duffy's boots, grew to maturity, and, in their turn, furbished up the wife catchers, when intent upon invading the affections of other rustic fair ones, at length these invaluable relics descended to me, as the representative of our family, it was ten years on last lady day since they came into my possession, and I am proud to say, that during that time the Duffies and the wife catchers lost nothing of the reputation they had previously gained, for no less than 19 marriages and 96 christenings had occurred in our family during the time, I had every hope, too, that another chalk would have been added to the matrimonial telly, and that I should have the pleasure of completing the score before Lent, for, one evening, about four months ago, I received a note from your cousin Peter, informing me that he intended riding over, on the following Sunday, to Miss Peggy Haggerty's, for the purpose of popping the question, and requesting of me the loan of the lucky wife catchers for the occasion, I need not tell you I was delighted to oblige poor Peter, who was the best fellow and surest shot in the county, and accordingly took down the boots from their peg in the hall, through the negligence of the servant they had been hung up in a damp state, and had become covered with bloom mold, in order to render them decent and comfortable for Peter. I placed them to dry inside the fender, opposite the fire, then lighting my pipe, I threw myself back in my chair, and as the fragrant fumes of the Indian weed curled and wreathed around my head, with half-closed eyes turned upon the renowned wife catchers, I indulged in delightful visions of future weddings and christenings, and recalled, with a sigh, the many pleasant ones I had witnessed in their company, here my uncle applied the tumbler to his face to conceal his emotion, I brought to mind, he continued ordering, in a parenthesis, another jet of boiling water, I brought to mind the first time I had myself sported the envied wife catchers at the patron of Moitlin, I was then as wild a blade as any in Connaught, and the tops were in the prime of their beauty, in fact, I am not guilty of flattery or egotism in saying, that the girl who could then turn up her nose at the boots, or their master, must have been devilish hard to please, but though the heyday of our youth had passed, I consoled myself with the reflection that with the help of the saints, and a pair of new souls, we might yet hold out to marry and bury three generations to come, as these anticipations passed through my mind, I was startled by a sudden rustling near me, I raised my eyes to discover the cause, and fancy my surprise when I beheld the wife catchers, by some marvelous power, suddenly become animated, gradually elongating and altering themselves until they assumed the appearance of a couple of tall gentlemen clad in black, with extremely sallow countenances, and what was still more extraordinary, though they possessed separate bodies, their actions seemed to be governed by a single mind, I stared, and doubtless so would you, 
Jack, have you been in my place? But my astonishment was at its height, when the partners, keeping side by side as closely as the Siamese twins, stepped gracefully over the fender, and taking a seat directly opposite me, addressed me in a voice broken by an irrepressible chuckle, here we are, old boy, ugh, 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 who, so I perceive, gentlemen, I replied, rather dryly, you look a little alarmed, ugh, ugh, who, 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 cried the pair, excuse our laughter, who, 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 we mean no offense, none whatever, ugh, who, 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 we know we are somewhat changed in appearance, I assured the transformed tops I was delighted in being honored with their company, under any shape, hoped they would make themselves quite at home, and take a glass with me in the friendly way, the friends shook their heads simultaneously, declining the offer, and he whom I had hitherto known as the right foot, said in a grave voice, we feel obliged, sir, but we never take anything but water, moreover, our business now is to relate to you some of the singular adventures of our life, convinced, that in your hand they will be given to the world in three handsome volumes. My curiosity was instantly awakened, and I drew my chair closer to my communicative friends, who, stretching out their legs, prepared to commence their recital. Hem, cried the right foot, who appeared to be the spokesman, clearing his throat and turning to his companion Hem. Which of our adventures shall I relate first, brother? Why, replied the left foot, after a few moments' reflection. I don't think you can do better than tell our friend the story of Terence Duffy and the heiress. Agad, you're right, brother, that was a droll affair, and then, addressing himself to me, he continued, you remember your uncle Terence, a funny dog he was, and in his young days the very devil for lovemaking and fighting. Look here, said the speaker, pointing to a small circular perforation in his side, which had been neatly patched. This mark, which I shall carry with me to my grave. I received in an affair between your uncle and Captain Donovan of the North Cork Militia. The captain one day asserted in the public library at Bally Priesthood that a certain Miss Vidio Brannigan had hair red as a carrot. This calumny was not long in reaching the ears of your uncle Terence, who prided himself on being the champion of the sex in general, and of Miss Vidio Brannigan in particular. Accordingly he took the earliest opportunity of demanding from the captain an apology, and a confession that the lady's locks were a beautiful auburn. The militia hero, who was too courageous to desert his colors, maintained they were red. The result was a meeting on the daisies at four o'clock in the morning, when the captain's ball grazed your uncle's leg, and in return he received a compliment from Terence, in the hip, that spoiled his dancing for life. I will not insult your penetration by telling you what I perceive you are already aware of, that Terence Duffy was the professed admirer of Miss Vitty. The affair with Captain Donovan raised him materially in her estimation and it was whispered that the hand and fortune of the heiress were destined for her successful champion. There's an old saying, though, that the best dog don't always catch the hare, as Terence found to his cost. He had a rival candidate for the affections of Miss Vitty, but such a rival however I will not anticipate. Songs for the Sentimental Number 3 I am nine in my gladness, I nine and I tears, my love it can change not with absence or years, were a dungeon I dwelling. My home it should be, for its gloom would be sunshine if I were with thee. But the light has no beauty of thee. Love bereft, I and thine, and thine only. Thine, over the left, over the left, as the wild Arab hails, on his desolate way. The palm tree which tells where the cool fountains play. 
so thy presence is ever the herald of bliss, for there's love in thy smile, and there's joy in thy kiss, thou hast won me then wear me, of thee, love, bereft, I should fade like a flower, yes, over the left, over the left, a gentleman in mobile has a watch that goes so fast, he is obliged to calculate a week back to know the time of day, a new bass singer has lately appeared at New Orleans, who sings so remarkably deep, it takes nine Kentucky lawyers to understand a single bar. A natural deduction why as he is long lived at once appears the ass was always famed for length of years. Wit without money, O.R. How to live upon nothing. By the A.M.P.Y.R.E. Horsleach. Esquire, creations ere the world. The world is mine. Goldsmith. Philosophers. Moralists. Poets. In all ages have never better pleased themselves or satisfied their readers than when they have descended upon, deplored, and denounced the pernicious influence of money upon the heart and the understanding. Filthy lucre, so much trash as may be grasped thus, yellow mischief. I know not, or choose not, to recount how many justly injurious names have been applied to coin by those who knew, because they have felt, its consequences. Wherefore, I say at once, it is better to have none on to live without it. And yet, now I think better upon that point, it is well not altogether to discourage its approach. On the contrary, lay hold upon it, seize it, rescue it from hands which in all probability would work ruin with it, and resolutely refuse, when it is once got, to let it go out of your grasp. Let no absurd talk about quittance, discharge, remuneration, payment, induce the holder to relax from his inflexible purpose of palm, day, like party is the madness of many for the gain of a few, and happily, vile gold, or its representation or equivalent, has been, during many centuries, the sole medium through which the majority of mankind have supplied their wants, or ministered to their luxuries, it is high time that a sage should arise to expound how the discerning few those who have the wit and the will both must concur to the great end may live live not like him who buys and balances himself by the book of the groveler who wrote, how, to live upon fifty pounds a year, oh shame to manhood, but live, I say, be free and merry, laugh and grow fat, exchange the courtesies of life be a pattern of the minor morals, and yet, all this without a do it in bank, bureau, or breeches pocket, I am that sage, let none deride, haply, I shall only remind some, but I may teach many, those that come to scoff, may perchance go home to pray, let no gentleman of the old school for whom, indeed, my brief treatise is not designed be startled when I advance this proposition, that more discreditable methods are daily practiced by those who live to get money, than are resorted to by those who without money are nevertheless under the necessity of living, if this proposition be assent to as, in truth, I know not how it can be gainsaid, nothing need be urged in vindication of my art of free living, proceed I then at once, here is a youth of promise born, like Jophir with elegant desires, one who does not agnize a prompt alacrity in carrying burdens one, rather, who recognizes a moral and physical unfitness for such, and indeed all other dorsal and manual operations one who has been born a Briton, and would not, therefore, sell his birthright for a mess of pottage, but, on the contrary, holds that his birthright entitles him to as many messes of pottage as there may be days to his mortal span. Though time's fingers stretched beyond the distance allotted to extreme par or extremist Jenkins, elegant desires are gratified to the extent I purpose treating of them. My handsome clothes comfortable lodgings good dinners. First, of handsome clothes, here, I confess, I find myself in some difficulty. 
The man who knows not how to have his name entered in the day book of a tailor, is not one who could derive any benefit from instruction of mine. He must be a born natural. Why? It comes by instinct. Second, of comfortable lodgings, easily obtained and secured, the easiest thing in life. But the wit without money must possess very little more of the former than of the latter. If he do not, even when snugly ensconced in one splendid suite of apartments, have his eye upon many others, for landladies are sometimes vexatiously impertinent, and novelty is desirable. Besides, his departure may be nay, often is extremely sudden, when in quest of apartments, I have found tarnished cards in the windows preferable. They imply a length of vacancy of the floor, and a consequent relaxation of those narrow, worldly some call them prudent scruples, which landladies are apt to nourish. Hints of a regular income, payable four times a year, have their weight, nay, often convert weekly into quarterly lodgings. Be sure there are no children in your house. They are vociferous when you would enjoy domestic retirement, and inquisitive when you take the air. Once Horace the reference, on returning from my peripatetics, I was accosted with brutally open-mouthed clamor, by my landlady, who, dragging me in a state of bewilderment into her room, plant two numerous specimens of granite, which her young people had, in their unhallowed thirst for knowledge, discovered and drawn from my trunk, which, by some strange mischance, had been left and locked. In vain I mumbled something touching my love of mineralogy, and that a lapidary had offered I knew not what for my collection. I was compelled to bundle, as the idiomatic, but ignorant woman expressed herself, to resume, let not the nervous or sensitive would imagine that, in a vast metropolis like London, his chance of securing an appropriate lodging and a confiding landlady is at all doubtful. He might lodge safe from the past, certain of the future, till the crash of doom. I shall be met by Ferguson's case. Ferguson I knew well, and I respected him, but he had a most unfortunate countenance. It was a very solemn, but by no means a solvent face, and yet he had a manner with him too, and his language was choice, if not persuasive that the matter of his speech was plausible. None ever presumed to deny. It is all very well, Mr. Ferguson. That was always conceded. I do not wish to speak ill of the dead, but Ferguson never entered a lodging without being compelled to pay a fortnight in advance, and always third, of good dinners, which, like other men, are distinguished by a variety of tastes and inclinations. Some prefer dining at taverns and eating houses, others, more discreet or less daring. Love the quiet security of the private house, with its hospitable inmates, courteous guests, and no possibility of bill transactions. I confess when I was young and inexperienced, wanting that wisdom which I am now happy to impart, I was a constant frequenter of taverns, eating houses, oyster rooms, and similar places of entertainment. I am old now, and have been persecuted by a brutal world, and am grown timid but I was ever a peaceable man hated quarrels never came to a words if I could help it. I do not recommend the tavern, eating house, oyster room system. These are the words of wisdom. The waiters at these places are invariably sturdy, fleet, abusive rascals, who cannot speak and will not listen to a reason, to eat one's dinner, drink a pint of sherry, and then, calling for the bill, take out one's pocketbook, and post it in its rotation in a neat hand, informing the waiter the while that it is a simple debt, and so forth, this really requires nerve, great spirits only are equal to it, it is an innovation upon old, established forms, however absurd and innovators bring down upon themselves much obloquy, 
to run from the score you have run up not to pay your shot, but to shoot from payment this is not always safe, and invariably spoils digestion. No, it is not more honorable far from it but it is better, for you should strive to become, what is commonly called, a diner out, that is to say, one who continues to sit at the private tables of other men every day of his life, and by his so potent art, succeeds in making them believe that they are very much obliged to him. How to be this thing this diner out, I shall teach you, by a few short rules next week. Till then farewell. Lord William Page it has applied to the Lord Chancellor, to inquire whether the word, jackass, is not opprobrious and actionable. His Lordship says, member decidedly, in this case only synonymous, the political quack. Sir Robert Peel has convinced us of one thing by his Tamworth speech that whatever danger the Constitution may be and he will not proscribe for the patient until he is regularly called in. A beautiful specimen of the old Tory leaven, Sir Robert objects to give advice gratis, to fancy builders and capitalists, a large assortment of peculiarly fine oyster shells, warranted fireproof and of first-rate quality, exquisitely adapted for the construction of grottoes, may be seen by cards only, to be procured of Mr. George Robbins or the clerks of Billingsgate or Hungerthoft Markets, and be some splendid ground at the corners of popular and well-frequented streets, to be let on short leases for edifices of the above description. Apply as before. Literary Recipes The following invaluable literary recipes have been most kindly forwarded by the celebrated Ud. They are the produce of many years' intense study, and, we must say, the very best things of the sort we have ever met with. There is much delicacy in Edward leaving it to us, as to whether the communication should be anonymous. We think not, as the peculiarity of the style would at once establish the talent authorship, and, therefore, attempted concealment would be considered as the result of a too morbidly modest feeling. How to cook up a fashionable novel. Take a consummate puppy and dot be dot as preferable as they are generally the softest and don't require much pressing based with self-conceit stuff with slang season with maudlin sentiment hash up with a popular publisher simmer down with preparatory advertisements. Add six reams of gilt-edged paper grate in a thousand quills garnish with marble covers, and morocco backs and corners. Stir up with magazine of skin off sufficient for preface. Shred scraps of French and small talk. Very fine. Add, superfine coats, satin stocks, bouquets, opera boxes, a duel, and elopement street George's church silver bride favors eight footmen for postillions the like number of horses a, drudger, of smiles some filtered tears half mourning for a dead uncle the better if he has a twitch in his nose, and serve with anything that will bear, frittering, a sentimental ditto, by the same offer, take a young lady dress her in blue ribbons sprinkle with innocence, spring flowers, and primroses, Procure a baronet a lord if in season, if not, a depraved, younger son, trim him with a cardi, rouge et noir, epsom, derby, and a slice of Crockford's, work up with rustic cottage, an aged father, blind mother, and little brothers and sisters in brown holland pinafores, introduce mock abduction strong dose of virtue and repentance, serve up with village church happy parent delighted daughter reformed rake blissful brothers sir and sisters and perfect denouement and be seasoned with perspective christening and postponed epitaph. A startling romance. Take a small boy, charity, factory, carpenter's apprentice, or otherwise, as occasion may serve to him well down in vice garnish largely with oaths and flash songs boil him in a cauldron of crime and improbabilities. Season equally with good and bad qualities infuse petty larceny, affection, benevolence, and burglary. 
honor and housebreaking. Amiability and arson boil all gently. Stood down a mad mother a gang of robbers several pistols a bloody knife. Serve up with a couple of murders and season with a hanging match. And be alter the ingredients to a beadle and a workhouse the scenes may be the same. But the whole flavor of vice will be lost. And the boil will turn out a perfect pattern. Strongly recommended for weak stomachs. An historical ditto. Take a young man six feet high mix up with a horse draw a squire from his father's estate the broad-shouldered and loquacious are the best sort prepare both for potting that island exporting. When abroad, introduce a well-pounded Saracen a foreign princess to down a couple of dwarfs and a conquered giant fill two sauce tureens with a prodigious ransom. Garnish with garlands and dead turps. Serve up with a royal marriage and cloth of gold. A narrative. Take a distant village follower with high road introduce and boil down peddler. Dot his pack and cut his throat hang him up by the heels when enough. Let his brother cut him down get both into a stupet or the real murderer grill the innocent for a short time then take them off, and put delinquents in their place these can scarcely be broiled too much, and a strong fire is particularly recommended. When real perpetrators are done, all is complete. If the parties have been poor, serve up with mint sauce, and the name of the enriched sufferer. Biography of Kings Lay in a large stock of gammon and penny royal carefully strip and pare all the tainted parts away. When this can be done without destroying the whole wrap it up in printed paper, containing all possible virtues based with flattery, stuff with adulation, garnish with fictitious attributes, and a strong infusion of sycophancy. Serve up to prepared courtiers, who have been previously well seasoned with long-received pensions or sinecures. Dramatic recipes, for the ADLPHI. Very fine. Take a beautiful and highly accomplished young female, imbued with every virtue, but slightly addicted to bigamy. Let her sit through the first act as the bride of a condemned convict then season with a benevolent but very ignorant lover at a marriage. Stir up with a gentleman in dusty boots and large whiskers, drudge in a meeting, and based with the knowledge of the dusty boot proprietor being her husband. Let this steam for some time, during which, prepare, as a covering, a pair of pistols, 